little bonus episode for you. We're going to do a little open on George's dominant win and repeating and what it means for some of the conference conversation. And Trent Dilfer on the game. Stetson Bennett, Max Duggan also as pros. Their chances. There's not a ton to get into with this game. It was so one-sided. So thanks for checking out a Tuesday episode. Okay, that was uh, not a close football game. Georgia wins back-to-back titles, demolishing TCU last night. I felt like pretty early on, you're like, this is probably not going to be pretty. Uh, TCU only scored seven points because a guy fell down. So it could have been worse, right? And so that then leads to some of my most disliked content um, when you start talking about it. Like, oh, well, TCU never should have been in it. Man, what the fuck? Like, yeah, okay, what do you want to put Bama back in it now and have them play next week? You know? Uh, as I said, after the semifinal, the Peach Bowl game, it felt like that missed field goal was for the national championship. It was. Ohio State would have beat TCU. And then I can't help but think of the transitive property of equality, which is usually always a mistake to use in sports. And I mean this. like I think it's always a mistake because every game is different. Week to week is different. Teams are different every week, unless apparently you're Georgia. But there was part of me that was kind of thinking about leading up to it. I'm going, okay. I was down in the Big Ten for most of the season because I keep waiting for the Big Ten to be the team that surpasses the SEC at some point, right? Like at some point, the SEC is going to be totally down. They're going to lose out of conference games. Um, it'll be weird because it'll probably have to happen in the bowl season where they're a disaster. And then, you know what I mean? Like for them to lose some of the benefit of the doubt stuff, it's going to take more than just September. You get the point. But I look at the Big, the Big Ten as the only conference that could really, if they had everybody rolling at the right time, and that includes Wisconsin, that includes Penn State, of course, Michigan and Ohio State. Michigan State at some points you know, has been a really competitive football team. I'm like, that's the only one where it feels like you could get to the fourth team that won a national championship. Not that I think the Big Ten is going to win four in a row with four different programs, but you get my point here. It gets a lot harder to get that deep in the ACC or the Big 12 and even and even times the Pac-12. Um Although the Pac-12 maybe has a better chance, but again, uh, it, I, I get frustrated with the Big Ten only because I'd expect at some point it to go a little bit better. Uh, and right now, the SEC in the playoffs is 14-3 and three against every other conference. So they have more losses, yes, against each other, but now they're 14-3. and three. So then I looked at Bama beating K-State, who beat TCU, and Bama could name their number against Kansas State. And it wasn't like, oh, Bama should have been in because I just don't think that's fair. Like, what the fuck did we just do for three plus months, right? Um, But when that happened and then Michigan TCU happens, and yes, there was part of me that still couldn't get past that maybe, you know, fluky always feels a little insulting, but there was like three specific busted plays in Ohio State-Michigan game where I was like, what the hell happened there? Like, if Ohio State and Michigan played 10 times, what do you think the record would be? Because I don't think it'd be five and five. I think Ohio State would win more of those games. But they got trucked at their place in the second half. Credit to Michigan. So what I don't want to do is also turn this into a bunch of stuff where you feel retroactively like we're taking credit away from teams. But there was a combination of events there. I'm like, okay, TCU gets Michigan. Now, that Ohio State-Michigan game was kind of weird. Ohio State's one of three, four teams that has the talent that he can match up with Georgia. That's a close game. Goes down to the last field goal. And then, wait, that's right. Kansas State, who beat TCU, smashed by Alabama. And, I mean, even LSU, who I knew conveniently became like a weird four-loss team. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I mean, they destroyed a Purdue team that, yes, I understand, had had some challenges with the coaching stuff. But, I mean, give me a break. I, you know, that's, that's two division winners there. And it was, I mean, I, LSU probably could have scored more if they wanted to. All right. So you add all these things up. And it'll go into next year, and it's going to piss off Big Ten fans again. And it's, it's really simple. Just start winning some of these games, man. Just start winning some of these games. Illinois loses. Ohio State loses, although close. Michigan loses. And then a weird thing from Ohio State fans is like, yeah, hey, we were right there, and it could have been. Yeah, but you're Ohio State. Like, that's not the way you should be looking at things. You should be pissed off about it, not relieved. Right? I would think. Um, Penn State finally gets a ranked win against a good Utah team that lost their quarterback halfway through it. So it's Penn State's first win of the season, and it happened in January. You're just going to need to start winning some of these games, even though the bowl season could be a little misleading because of stuff that happens depending on who leaves and the coaching things, right? Again, ask Purdue. Um, You could also ask Florida, and you could ask Kentucky that, right? I know how frustrating and how annoying it is, and then to have another title, four in a row for this conference, but that's why I would say, like, I argue as much as I do about this at times, because it comes down to, like, you're going to have to start winning some of these games if you don't want to start hearing the same arguments that annoy the rest of the conferences this much. So congrats to Georgia. And I remind uh, the audience of this story from Bob Myers, runs the Golden State Warriors. I was asking him about a run that seemed a lot more challenging after they had won. I mean, the same thing happened with Jordan's Bulls, where especially that second three-peat, the third time, like even they didn't know if they could do it, even though they've had the the right team for it. It just was mentally exhausting. There's such entitlement that comes with it. Uh, There's no way. It's very hard to duplicate the inner drive, that inner motivation when you've actually already accomplished the thing. And Bob Meyer said something to me that I've I've always thought was really interesting, and it's, it's not like groundbreaking, but he's like, look, imagine this. Imagine if you wanted to hike Mount Everest with your closest friends and you put together a plan you booked it all out. You finally get the schedule right. You maybe been talking about it for years. You get the equipment. You hire the guides. You get there, and it's like you're, you're, you're timing it right, and it works. You summon it. You make it all the way back down. You're safe, and you fucking did it. You did it. You did it. And then one of your buddies is like, hey, you want to do it again next year? There's no way your focus, your drive, your anticipation, your excitement, there is, it is impossible to keep you to that standard of doing it the first time. And so college football, even though there's a little bit more turnover, I don't think there's any scarcity of entitlement for teams that have won. You know, whenever you talk to these teams, like, what happened that next year? I thought you were more talented. Like, man, you know, just wasn't enough buy-in. Wasn't enough buy-in from the guys. Hear it all the time. And even with the turnover, maybe the defensive turnover was good for Georgia, even though talent-wise it wasn't the same. So that doesn't seem like it makes a ton of sense. But it is so hard to repeat. And so they deserve a ton of credit for it, even if today it feels like people are going, wait, were they even playing the right team? Yeah, they were, man. They were playing the right team. (laughs) Even if, like we all thought, the Peach Bowl was the national title game. Very excited to have Trent Dilfer on one more time here. Uh, he had mentioned it last week. Hey, let's talk after the national championship game. So bonus episode of the pod for you, as you understand. Um, okay, that wasn't close. <laughs> I, <laughs> well, you know, we play him in Athens week four. Right. Yep. So no, we're going to talk about it. That was awesome to watch. <laughs> 
Oh, good times. You pick up on anything? You find any weaknesses there to exploit? There's not a whole lot of weaknesses, man. They are uh, super talented. They get better as the year go on, goes on. Scheme-wise, you know, I think when Kirby's saying aggressive, what that meant was they had really, um, they were scheme sharp. They had scheme advantages. Um, they felt like they had distinct um, scheme advantages, to be honest with you, and it showed in the game. So you put talent, you put hungry, you have tactical advantages. Uh, Kirby's a master with, you know, creating this chip on your shoulder mentality, us against the world. Um, that's as good a football as I've seen that group play. And uh, I don't care who was out there last night. Nobody really had a chance. No, uh, I would agree with you. I think the first thing that was so alarming was how easy it was for Georgia. I mean, when you had Stetson at that keeper, there wasn't even, there was two blockers out in front and there was no one to block. So yeah. you had the little eye candy got TCU thrown off. Um, and again, like if there was something I was trying to figure out, like, okay, how could it play out? How could it be competitive? We've been around sports long enough. We know stuff, weird stuff happens. And I was like, man, you know, that they got some tackles for loss. They got some penetration against Michigan. Like, is there any chance? And right from the jump, you're like, this is going to be really easy for them on offense. And then you're thinking, okay, can Duggan and Johnson, can they have some miracle plays here? And it felt like there were 13 defenders on the on the field for him. That was the other thing. Like, it felt like TCU had no space to ever operate anything. If it wasn't there immediately, it, which it, it rarely was there immediately, they weren't going to have any time to go to the other thing. And it was pretty clear early. This was going to be horrifying. Yeah, let's talk about the, the mismatch of Georgia's defense versus TCU's offense. I thought the biggest thing that stood out was the length, the difference in length. In the whole game, I'd say both sides of the ball, but... Uh, George is not just having it, but knowing how to use it. You know, the extension at the line of scrimmage, shedding blocks. Uh, George's defensive line was just manhandling TCU's offensive line, using their length. In the secondary, using their length to not let TCU's receivers get going, uh, eating up space. Um, and, and then the strength, I would, I would argue, too, that George is just, their bodies look bigger and stronger. They played with more strength. Um, they didn't miss tackles. Um, TCU just it just ate up all of what TCU's been doing all year which is taking advantage of space and speed length and strength trumped space and speed and uh, I think you see it every year uh, at some point you know these teams go the speed route the space route and then they meet length and strength and it doesn't hold up and to me that was the biggest thing I will go back to George's offense uh, Monk and, and that staff, it's not always just Todd, but Todd's the offense coordinator. Um, uh, but there was just, they had such an advantage with shifts, motions, personnel groupings, uh, going to using the two back sets sometimes, uh, to take advantage of the perimeter and the passing game. Uh, now you can draw this stuff up on paper, but Stetson had to execute it and he executed it at a uh, elite level last night. He's always good. I'm a huge Stetson fan, but uh, he was the best he's ever been uh, in the in his final game there. It was pretty special to watch. What was it with the way they were changing up how they were basically tempo? Um, they, they threw a lot at TCU. It looked like on that first big play to the left side, as, as Herbie pointed out, like they broke it really quick. Mm -hmm. um, I think he called it a sugar huddle mm -hmm. there. What was going on with what they were doing with changing up how fast or slow they wanted to go? I think for the easiest way for people to understand is they were mixing really well. So they were mixing 
personnel, formations, shift, motions with tempo. Uh, when you can do all that, the defense really has, really is on their heels and really had to get in some base looks. And then what they did, they were strategic when they use kind of that sugar fast mentality to get them into their base look. And that was a flood concept um, to the left, kind of taking advantage of a base look. And um, they knew if they could sugar out of that in that personnel grouping, that would be the scramble defense. That That's kind of what we call it is, what are they going to scramble to? And if we know what they're going to scramble to, then we know we have a tactical advantage on that play. Uh, and they did that a bunch throughout the game, was kind of using uh, all the different mixtures to get the benign base looks by TCU. They really wanted them in their base defense. And when, I think we talked about this last week, like, you know, you you want certain teams in their base. Um, and that's what Georgia wanted. And, and you saw a lot of the big plays coming against just that TCU and their base alignment because they were forced either by personnel, either by a shift, either by a motion to get into what I'd call their training camp defense, their day one. Okay, back to Stetson. Uh, we all know the story. Who is he as an NFL prospect? Chase Daniel. I think that's the name that I keep using. Now, my daughter asked me that last night watching. Like, okay, so dad, when's he going to get drafted and what's he going to become? And I'd say, I'd say Chase Daniel's a, a, a great. Now, Chase Daniel's made, I think, $42 million and started five games in the league. So this is a compliment, by the way. Um, and yeah, Chase is a unicorn. I mean, you know, there's just not many people that are ever going to have that kind of run. And honestly, I don't know if he, I think him not playing may have been the best thing for him. Yeah, I think you're right. But you create value for yourself. He's, sure. He's very talented. Uh, Stetson's a very talented player. Uh, he throw. He can rip the ball. Uh, he has elite twitch in his feet. Um, he's obviously very smart and comprehend a, a large volume of offense because that's what Georgia does. They run an NFL offense there. So um, it's just the the physicality of the NFL is so extreme um, that, you know, can he stay healthy? And that would be my concern. I think he could he execute, but could he stay healthy? Um, it's my only concern I have with Bryce Young. You know, I think Bryce Young's a generational talent. Um, he's thin joined and doesn't weigh a lot. Can he stay healthy? Um, you know, the, it's a big man's game in the NFL. Yeah, there's some exceptions. Yes, people can question and say, well, what about this guy? What about that guy? But uh, those guys are unicorns. Uh, they're outliers. Um, for the most part, the guys that play a long time in the NFL as starters are thick jointed, broad shouldered, big hipped, uh, physical guys, not height. Um, but stature, um, because even though the game isn't nearly as physical as it used to be at quarterback, you still have big dudes landing on you. You know, you still have those out-of-pocket hits. You still have uh, enough opportunity where your body has to stand up to the rigors, uh, which is the NFL. So uh, that that's what I think Stetson will be looked at. I think fifth round, fourth round to a good team that doesn't need to add a, uh, you know, a, a corner in that round to add depth or another offensive lineman or an H back. You know, you look at that fourth, fifth, sixth round, and that's typically where good teams are either adding depth uh, to places that they're talented already, or they might be getting old and they need to develop that player. Uh, or they have the ability to take a, a quarterback that can um, come in and 
digest the playbook and execute at a high level in practice. And if your starter goes down, feel good about going in there and playing well. Uh, the the commander's quarterback, I always pronounce his last Heineke. name wrong, Heineke, uh, another comparable. Um, I think Stetson's probably a little more disciplined than him. Yeah, I don't yeah, I don't think yeah. that one's, we agree. Because like as much as you appreciate what Heineke did, I think what ends up costing him his job is people look at him as a total wild card. I yeah. think with Stetson, you would go at his worst. His, his floor is a little higher than yeah. some other prospect, which a veteran you know, team, you know, I can see the fit for him in a team where it's like, hey, this guy's not going to go out there and kill us. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, what the, like, that's the the pitch on Stetson. Anyway. I think you can win with Stetson. I, I really do. I, I don't know. You don't want to build your franchise around him, but I think you're drafting him because you believe, wow, we do this right. His work ethic, his grit, all the things that he showed in his career, they're all these, you know, movie type stories that were being told last night all translate into why you want him on your team. Because if he's your backup quarterback, then those qualities he's going to have to utilize on a day-to-day basis, uh, grit, determination, perseverance, doing the lonely work, being patient and go on and on and on. If you have that as your backup, then you may, I mean, your starter goes down for six to eight weeks. I think you feel really good about a Stetson Bennett. I don't think he's like a, He's not going to get his kill. That's what made me think of this. I do not. That's how I'm not. That's not how I would look at it. Uh, Gardner Minshew is another one who I'm a big fan of. Um, I think Gardner is a guy that you can win with in this league. And, um, you know, it just can't. You don't build your franchise around them. Um, they're on your team because they add massive value in the week of practice. And if they're asked to play, you feel like you can win with them. Yeah, look, there's some good throws out there. This is not uh-huh. the one side of the field, you uh-huh. know, totally limited system thing. Like that Bowers throw uh-huh. that he throws and he times it up where Bowers is breaking behind the defensive player and there's a crowd there. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. not like I felt like that's the kind of throw where you go, okay, he, there's more to this than just here's the read, check down, here's the read, check down that we see with so many of the prolific offenses, which, you know, again, I don't blame teams for running some of these systems because they're putting up points, but I think that's always kind of that that thing that you're looking for. Like, is this guy really going to play on Sunday? Like, the lad throw was sick, the AD throw was sick. Um, I think I, you know, an interesting thing. No, some good throws in there. Anyway, go ahead. No doubt, and I'll go on that. I think it's a really interesting thing for the fan. If you want to really get geeky about this as we get into pre-draft, I think you can get this on PFF. Uh, I think this is available to the fan out there. You may have to pay for it. But get a quarterback spray chart. Get a quarterback. And and then the spray chart equals throw catalog. And it's pretty revealing every year when I do that. Now, this will be the first year I haven't done pre-draft evaluations since 2008 because uh, I'm doing my own thing. But every year, kind of my final thing that I would do after I did the intangible evaluations, the production evaluations, the traits, talking to GMs, talking to college coaches, blah, blah, blah. It was, I'd go and look at the spray chart and it would tell me what their throw catalog is. And it's pretty revealing sometimes. Sometimes these guys are like left, 12 yards and under, right, 12 to 20, very little in the middle of the field, very little runaway stuff, you know, where receivers are crossing the field and running away from your arm um, Stetson's going to have a massive spray chart. He's going to have a massive thro- throw catalog because Ton Munkin demands it. Like that offense, you have to attack every place on the field. 
Um, it, it will be better than most. It'll be better than the other guys. And then conversely, I'll bring up the um, kid from Kentucky. His is going to be very small. You know what I mean? Levis is going to have a very small spray chart. Uh, he did not make a lot of the same throws uh, and frankly can't make the same throws that Stetson Bennett can make and has made uh, at the highest level of college football, basically semi-pro football. So um, I, again, I couldn't be more bullish. The, the, what it, the NFL scouts are going to say is what I started this with is can he stay healthy with the physicality of the NFL game? Um, what about Duggan on the other side? I mean, I know it was a bad night. And yeah. His story is, is incredible as well. Um, but your thoughts on him? I actually think he's a really good prospect. He's grown a lot as a passer. Um, he's physically, again, he's got that physicality to him. He's a thick jointed, uh, kid. He's got the stature. He's got really good movement traits. He's a very good thrower of the football. Uh, you know, having Riley as his offense coordinator, he's been exposed, uh, to a pretty decent amount of, of transferable offense to the league. Um, I actually think his stock may rise that last night may hurt him a little bit, but I think anybody's going to look at the contextually at that game and be like, Ooh, yeah, that one was, that was a tough one. And, you know, Tom Brady had stinkers, <laughs> Aaron Rodgers had stinkers, you know, all these greats, Mahomes had stinkers. So, uh, don't let one game, um, affect an entire career. And again, I think there's a lot of, uh, stuff internal stuff that you like about Duggan. He, his resilience, again, his toughness, the type of leader he is. I was even looking at the cutaway shots, you know, with the frustration on the sideline, and I thought he handled it with a great deal of poise. In fact, I thought the entire TCU team, they were shell-shocked, obviously. That thing got away from them fast. You cannot criticize how they handled it, and it, sometimes it's hard to handle a beatdown, uh, and you get you know, you throw temper tantrums and people start pointing the finger and there wasn't a lot of that. And it started with Duggan. He really handled that uh, butt kick in as, as well as you could. Uh, and I, I think there's something of value there. I know after, uh, I, I might've been halftime of the game because it, it was so lopsided and, you know, Pollock's not afraid. Uh, he was sitting there next to Saban and the clip comes out. He's like, mm -hmm. Georgia has taken over the college football world. Uh, and if you know Pollock, he's actually not doing it to mess with Saban. No, uh -huh. but, he, but he's totally unafraid at the same time. Yeah. And he's like, I'm just going to say it. And, you know, it turned. And the, here's the deal you, you win back to back, you do what they've done, you lose one game in two years. He's not necessarily wrong. I guess I just still resist the idea that I will. I will look at Bama as now no longer able to contend with Georgia. I don't. I don't buy that. I mean, if you, uh, if, if if you tell me all of a sudden the good players are going to start going there and don't want to go to Bama, okay, now we can have that conversation. If you look at the recruiting rankings for next year's class, Bama is actually ahead of Georgia. It's one, and then it's number two. I refuse to believe that Saban, with the staff, the way he challenges himself, the opposite of what what Belichick wants to do in New England. New England wants comfort. Saban wants new. You know what I mean? Like he actually wants. I, I think I used to think about the turnover with Bama as this negative, and I'm like, honestly, I think it's almost a positive because at that place you have to bring your A game. And so, here's here's my end of my statement. George has got it rolling right now, no doubt. But there seems to be this rush from some media members to act as if the baton can never go back to Tuscaloosa. Yeah, I don't think anybody actually in football thinks that 
Alabama is not going to be in contention next year. I mean, I, I see those players. Like I, I see the type of, I, I know I just hired a coach from their staff as mom's coordinator. So I know how it works. Alabama is going to be, you're crazy. If you think that it's Georgia and everybody else and Bama isn't in that mix, they're going to, they're going to be just fine. I think the interesting thing is both have to change quarterbacks. You know, there's, it's hard, no matter how good you are, uh, no matter how many stars your backup has or how many reps he got to jump in and play it, play at the level they expect with a new quarterback. So both of them will be breaking in new quarterbacks, whether that's a portal or whether, or whether that's a guy on their roster. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that, you know, the top tier of the SEC, Georgia, Alabama, and whoever else you want to put in there is so much better than everybody else. It's it's alarming, um, not just from a talent standpoint. Now, don't just hear me from a talent standpoint, from a coaching standpoint, too. Um, they're running NFL stuff. And you watch a lot of college football, and they're running college stuff, which is cool. Uh, it's good stuff, but it ain't NFL stuff. There's a level of sophistication, a level of professionalism, a standard that is in those programs, along with a lot of talent that just uh, – sets itself apart from anything else. And, and and listen, I get to experience live and in-person, baby, as the coach used to tell me, uh, week four. And I don't think there's no way you can comprehend uh, what it's like until you play against. But that's what's exciting about it. You get Your players get to be exposed to it, and they get to – because they all want to play in the NFL, right? They're all saying, oh, I'm going to get to the league. Like, okay, great. Well, we're going to go play a bunch of, uh, against a bunch of guys. They're going to play in the league. And – uh, that have schemes that are just like the league. And uh, I'll be able to tell you what it's like, but you won't really know until you face it. And I think that's a great opportunity for us and other teams to get to play those teams. Okay, so last thing. Do you watch last night's game knowing you have them for the fourth game of your season? Like, do you do you learn anything from last yeah, night? Is there I anything you do? Do? you do? Absolutely, okay. you do. Yeah, we were texting back as the fourth as, fourth as coaches. And it's not weaknesses. So you're not like... Oh, look at they're weak there. There are no weaknesses, but you're looking for things to give you a shot. You're looking for adjustments you can make. Um, you're looking for decisions not to make. I think a lot of it is you don't want to go into that game and just give it away, right? So you're trying to you're trying to make good, wise decisions as a staff of how do you equip your players uh, to mo- not make foolish mistakes. Um, so yeah, there's actually a lot to learn, and and we'll watch both TV copy and game copy dozens of times uh, to give our kids the best answers to the test. Now they got to go out there and, and match the physicality and the speed and uh, being at their place and, you know, all the things that makes college football great, uh, the challenges of it. But, you know, I'm building this whole thing on doing hard things and being uncomfortable. So, I mean, I think it's apropos that week four is going to be about as uncomfortable as about as hard as you can find in college football. I'm actually jacked about it. I wish we had a few Georges on our schedule. You know what I mean? I think... When you're building a program, you need it as hard as it can possibly be. You need it as uncomfortable as it can possibly be um, so that there's a standard set early in the program of what what is the best and how do you prepare against the how do you prepare to play against the very, very best in in uh, college football? Yeah, I always wonder about that philosophically, where you know would you be better off having a really tough one week one so that that means your focus should be dialed up? Right. I mean, it's human nature. Hey, we've got so and so on the schedule, fill in the blank, any of the top, top programs of college football. 
But then I'd go, okay, yeah, but every team, their personality is different. So to just buy into one philosophy all the time, you're going to end up getting burnt by it the years where the team needed to be built up. And instead, they get their doors kicked in week one. And then you're you're trying to build them back up the rest of the way. Like this is different because it lands later. Obviously, not being in the Power Five conference, you know, there's there's going to be different um, different ways you want to challenge yourself out of conference, which I think is a really cool part of of schedule building with this. But you know, it really probably depends more on the team. Even though I'm sure some coaches dev- never deviate from whichever one they think is better. You know, well, I think I think the, this. What if people get concerned with of having too hard of a schedule is that your guys are going to get beat up and it's going to affect you in league play. I think that would be the common denominator. If you talk to a bunch of coaches at mid-majors on, why don't you just go play three power fives, you know, three big boys in your preseason? Well, because we don't want half our team hurt and then we can't go into conference. I understand that to a certain degree, but I also want, you want your players, well, for one, we're not chicken scratch, right? We're not the sisters of the poor. Right. We got, we got some big old athletic dudes on this team, and we're going to be just fine. So don't feel sorry for us. We're going to be just fine. Um, but you, I think you want to see how a mid-major player for, for an entire four quarters, can he continue to give you his best against the best? He can give you his best against equal or less than, but at the highest levels of this game, guys that want to play this and get paid to get play it professionally, there's got to be something inside you that allows you to keep giving your best against something that is as good or better than you. And it's a subtle little thing that isn't talked about. That's ultimately what you're looking for in your team. If you can get a group of guys to continue to give their best when it's not easy, when it's hard, when they're losing some of those battles, when they're losing multiple battles, but they continue to come back and press against the other team, that other opponent with their best, then you found something. So the only way you really know that is to go against the best. And that's why I've always been a believer in trying to go against the best as many times as possible. Trent, thanks uh, for doing this last little episode with us. Um, it'll be cool, man. We'll just check in with you when, when everything's official, get ready for the season. Yeah. All right. Talk some ball. All right. Thanks, Trent. Appreciate you, buddy. Bye. Okay. That'll do it. Quick 30 minutes for you. Hope you had fun. Talk to you tomorrow. Brian Russillo podcast. Thanks to Kyle. Finger Spotify. Spotify.